Thank you for joining us at Praise Chapel Paramount. Today's message was recorded live at the 2019 Paramount Harvesters Conference in Carson, California. This year's theme was Bridge. Pastor Omar's heart for this year's conference was centered around bridging the divide between generations, that the message of Jesus would be passed on from one generation to the next. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, are you ready for the word tonight? I mean, the word has been so rich this week, and I've just taken it all in. There's so much to say, and I'll tell you what. You know what? I forgot to thank all of the powerful speakers we had this week. Come on. And I, I'm just sitting there blown away. I go, I don't need the priest. They've said it all. They've, they described the bridge. They talked about the bridge. But uh, I'll tell you what, I have been so blessed uh, by the ministry and uh, by your attendance and your faithfulness. And honestly, we put on these uh, uh, conference yearly because we believe in people. We believe in you. And we believe in investing uh, spiritual life into you tonight. And so I want to pray before I even begin tonight. I just want to pray for the Holy Spirit uh, to just join us as we uh, get into the Word of God, as we dive into this message tonight. Father, what, what, a, what a wonderful presence of your glory in this house. We thank you, God, for every single person in this building. Lord, I pray that you'll minister to them wherever they're at in their life right now. God, challenge us today. Help us to focus on you, God. Remove every distraction. There's so many things on our mind. Lord, help us, God, just to hear. Hear your word and hear your voice in this message. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, have your way. And let the people hear the voice behind the voice. In Jesus' name. And the people said? Amen. Amen. Well, we've been, it's been almost a year that we really begin to pray about what we were going to talk about uh, in this August of 2019. And as I got together with a team of a number of people, uh, we began to talk about and and really God began to challenge me about uh, generations and what we could do to reach generations and how to impart in the next generation. And we came up with this theme, Bridge, because I believe it's critical this vision for future generation. And, of course, we've been talking about what a bridge is. We've been talking about uh, physically we know that a bridge is a structure that is built to span a physical object. We know that it's a, a structure that usually goes over a body of water or valley or road, and it still allows passageway under. It's usually a Uh, uh, it it spans an obstacle where uh, you can't otherwise cross. We know the construction of the bridge. People have been talking about the tension and how a bridge is made and all of these different things. But I really want to talk about the purpose of the bridge. I want to communicate tonight what is the purpose. And I believe the purpose of the bridge is that it provides connection. It provides contact. It provides a transition from one place to another. In fact, personally, we can become a bridge where we become a a bridge or a transition or a way to bridge 
uh, uh, relationship between one group to another, between one person or another. And I felt it was important as a fellowship and even as individuals that, that we would bridge the vision of faith to the next generation. How many understand that we're part of a great vision? When I begin to think of the DNA and I begin to think of this vision that, that we're a part of, that I've had the privilege to be a part of, I begin to think about this vision that, that is so powerful. We, we have a vision of worship. We're a people that believes in praising and worshiping God. We're people that believe today in evangelism. We believe in winning one and, and uh, through evangelism, personal witness, uh, and through all forms of media possible to get the gospel preached. We believe in discipleship. We believe in the raising uh, of men and women, uh, of committed, devoted disciples. Uh, and we also believe in reproducing that vision through church planting and multiplication. We want to reach more cities. I said we want to reach more cities for Jesus. And so I want to impart this spiritual life into the next generation. I feel divinely called by God to bridge this vision to the next generation. And as a church and as a fellowship, I believe we're in a critical place right now. And if we just leave it to simply good intentions... Nothing's going to get done. But I believe tonight, if we don't impart spiritual life into the next generation, we are honestly on the road to losing the next generation when it comes to faith in Christ. So we're at a critical place. I'm not sure if most of you may even know this, but statistically speaking, in the last 20 to 25 years, church attendance has gone down. I have observed, I have seen, I've read statistics, and it's an alarming rate how many people are exiting the church. Think about this. In 1999, 70% of Americans claimed to have church membership. Today, it is less than 50%. And out of the 50% that claim church membership, the average attendee only attends once or twice a month. This is also being seen in most mainline denominations. We're talking about the United Methodists. We're talking about the Presbyterians and the Lutherans. They are experiencing a decline in people attending their churches. And yet they are experiencing increases of churches actually clothing. These trends are not only in the Protestant churches, but it's also in traditional churches like the Catholic Church. It used to be 20 years ago, 70% of Catholics belong to a church. But now it is less than 60%. These trends are also manifesting themselves generationally. 62% of Generation X, people that were born in 1965 to 1981, are attending or down from 62%. And only 42% of Generation Y, which is the millennials, 
attend church. We've already missed Generation Z, which is 1997 to 2015, and there's a new generation that is emerging, and it's called the Alpha Generation. Just the name itself already tells you what they're about. They're going to be dominant. They're going to be leaders. And it's going to be very difficult to get them or to lead them back in the church. And I believe it's important if we love the church that Jesus died for, if we love the church that we're a part of, we need to pause for the cause. And we need to look in the mirror. And we need to ask ourselves, are we part of the problem? Because I can tell you today, we can point to secularism. We can say, well, you know, all this stuff going on. We can point to the Internet because the Internet has brought an enlightenment that, that like television, when it was first introduced, people are on the Internet today. They have virtual worship where you don't have to even attend a particular location. They basically can look at the church through virtual or through the Internet and not have to even be part of any community and again I need to ask ourselves are we part of the reason we can look all the way back into the old testament and we could see that even during Moses's time in the old testament one of the things that Moses did that was very powerful we know that he was not able to inherit the promised land but he was able to mentor the next generation and he mentored a, a man by the name of Joshua and Joshua was a phenomenal leader. Joshua was a tremendous leader. And he led the people of God into the promised land. But there was one downfall about Joshua. He did not raise up the next generation. In fact, the scripture says in Judges chapter 2 verse 10, when that whole generation had passed away, another generation came after them who didn't know the Lord or the thing that he had done for Israel. Another version said another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So one of Joshua's glaring weakness was that he did not impart spiritual life into the next generation. And when that next generation rose up, the Bible says they did not know the things of God. And this is why I believe it's important as the people of God today that we impart into the next generation. David in the book of Psalms brings this in a, a great way of saying it. He really says it in a powerful way. I think he gives us some great divine understanding. And he says this in Psalm 71, 18. I really want this to be my prayer. Even when I'm old and gray, do not more forsake me, O God. He's basically saying, God, let me live a little longer. And you know why he's saying that? Because he said, let me live till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. 
So he's saying in his prayer, God, let me live a little longer so that I could tell those that are coming behind me about your power, about your goodness, about who you are, about what you've done and what you can do. This is David's prayer, and I believe today uh, this is something all of us need to be saying. God, give me a shot to tell the next generation about your power and about your glory. Now, I'm not saying this is only the church's responsibility. I'm not saying this is only the pastor's responsibility. In fact, I'm going to take a few moments tonight. I want to talk to some of you parents. Because the greatest influence the next generation will have will be the parents. We like to blame the church. We like to blame the pastor. But when you think of how many hours they're actually in church and how many hours they're actually in your home, guess what? You are the biggest influence. See, we live in a day and time where some parents believe or they'll buy into the lie that the goal is to raise happy, well-educated, independent kids, and that defines success. And yet when I read the scripture, it teaches us basically that we're supposed to raise children in the things of God that radically have Jesus at the center of their life. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. When it says bringing them up, he's saying bring them to a place of maturity. And he says train them up in the things of God with some disciplines and understanding or understanding that they're not to live selfishly, but they're to live according to God's word. He said with instruction, in other words, you're to give them some warning and some counsel, and then you're supposed to bring them up in the things of the Lord, that Jesus is the supreme, that Jesus is the master of our life. And so the greatest goal in your life as a parent is not to raise some successful high school soccer player. I, I appreciate... You, you got a good football player, a good baseball player. I appreciate that, you know, we like to watch them and it teaches them, uh, you know, te- how to be a team player. But I'm telling you today, the greatest calling that we can have is to impart spiritual life into our children. We're not called to, to raise well-rounded, well educated kids. And happy kids, on the contrary, we're to raise single-minded, Christ-centered, biblically-anchored world changers. Are you with me? I believe, listen to me, I believe this generation, this generation that is coming up, that have come up, they are the most cause-driven, mission-minded generation. And I sense a divine call to impart the things of God into their life, to let them know that Jesus is the greatest person on earth. 
And we need to pause for a moment because I know some of you parents are saying, well, I'm just trying to pay the bills and, and I'm trying to beat traffic and, and I'm trying to, you know, keep my kids uh, from getting fat and, and not eating McDonald's food. And, and wh why are you putting this on me? You're responsible, buddy. You're it. Don't try to blame everybody else. But I'm here to tell you, it's a big challenge, but I'm here to tell you, God has given you all the tools that you need. God is equipping you with all the tools that you need. And I want to show you in Scripture where Paul the Apostle gives us a great example how one generation is impacted by another. And he talks to Timothy here, and I'm going to show you a verse of Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 3. This is Paul talking to a young pastor, and he says, Timothy, I thank God for you. The God I serve with a clear conscience, just as my ancestors did, night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. I long to see you again. He says, for I remember your tears as we parted. And I will be filled with joy, excuse me, when we are together again. And this is the part I love. I remember your genuine faith. For you share the faith that was first that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. They even had old people's name back then. Anyway, and now, and I know that the same faith continues strong. If your name is Eunice and Lois, I'm sorry. And I know that the same faith continues strong in you. This is why I remind you what? To fan into flame the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. So Paul and Timothy are a great example of a bridge from one generation to another. But it all started in how Timothy was raised. It started from his grandmother, and then it was passed to his mom, Eunice, and then uh, finally Timothy. So we're seeing three generations uh, of impartation, and then Paul begins to mentor Timothy with the things of God. But this is what I want to tell you. The reason why Paul was able to successfully impart into Timothy is because he had some supporting voices. See, there's one thing that a pastor or one that is discipling another could do. He could say things that will sound different than what grandma will say, nana will say, and mama will say. Because when the pastor says it or the mentor says it, it's different. And when you have those supporting voices, it makes all the difference in the world. And so what often happens is we'll get parents as the pastor is preaching like on a Friday night tonight. The parents will say, ah, oh, don't listen to that pastor. Just do what you want to do. Oh, uh, you know, they, they, you know, they just keep doing that. They just keep sitting out churches. Don't worry about that. Oh, uh, you don't need to go to church so much. You don't need to be so committed. You don't need to go to conference. Oh, we're just going to one night. And then we're wondering why we're not making impact on the next generation. See, the greatest temptation 
that this generation is facing, and we've talked about it several different times, is entitlement. And really, it's not totally this generation's fault because mom and dad were so busy working and doing all these things, and they begin to give them everything instead of loving them and telling them the truth. And they never lost at anything because they got a trophy no matter how they performed. Back when I was growing up, I didn't even make the team. I mean, that's just the way it worked. Today, everybody makes the team, and everybody gets a trophy. Really? That's phony, that's phony, that's phony. And then this generation is tempted to define truth as they see it. In other words, what they do, what they're hearing today is this emerging generation is being taught that there's no absolute truth which is kind of ironic because that's, that's kind of like an absolute statement which contradicts the whole premise of the ideal. Am I right? You said there's no absolute truth, but you're making an absolute statement that there's no absolute truth, fool. So what, what gives? And so what we're being taught today is whatever makes me feel good and happy... It's all right. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I want to, but I, but I believe I, if, as long as it makes me happy, I'm okay. No, you're, God does, God's not out to make you happy. He's out to make you holy. That's the truth. And truthfully, I'll be honest with you. I understand sin can be fun for a while. And if sin isn't fun for you, you, you don't know how to do it right. You're not. I can te- No, I can't teach you. I'm just telling you. You're not doing it right. But the Bible says sin leads to death. Sin can be fun. It can be like a sneeze. It feels good coming out. Then there's snot everywhere. You're going to get a lot of snot in your life. You keep sinning. You see, every generation is supposed to be a bridge to the next generation. The Bible says in Psalm 145.4, one generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. So I believe that the previous generations are supposed to be speaking lie to the next generation. Now, let me just give you a theory. It's not totally biblical, but I'm going to give you a theory, okay? I believe that anything that could be established to a third generation successfully takes on a permanent that the first generation didn't have. Now, let me explain this to you. First generation Christians, these are Christians that did not grow up with the Bible, that did not grow up going to church, that did not grow up as a Christian, and that's me. I'm a first-generation Christian. My parents were not Christian. They weren't Bible believers. Not to say that they didn't believe in the Bible, but they didn't, uh, uh, you know, faithfully attend or, or impart those things into me. So I, I was the first one in my family to go to church during the week. I was the first one to start listening to worship music. I was the first one to have Christian friends. 
And so I went through a lot of ridicule. That's what the first generation deals with. But then you have the second generation, and these are children that are born in Christian homes. Now, they deal with a whole different set of problems than the first generations do. And I want you to realize this is critical because the challenge that these kids that grow up in a Christian home, they meet the church before they meet Jesus. See, the first generation, I gave my life to Jesus. Then I was introduced to the church. Then I joined the church. The second generation Christians, they meet the church before they meet Jesus. And it's vastly different. They learn quickly that the church is not as loving and gracious. They learn quickly that the church is very imperfect. They understand real quick that, that the church is not as accepting as God is. And so this second generation get confused between Jesus and the church, and they don't look at themselves as giving their life to Jesus. They look at themselves as giving their life to the church. And so what happened uh, through the second generation, listen to me, if you're a second generation Christian, you need to hear what I'm saying to you. Because you know what I'm saying to you is true. You've grown up with a mentality of saying, well, you know, I've grown up in church all my life, but I'm not sure if I've, I've ever wanted to be here. And so what happens to a lot of these second-generation Christians, if they, uh, when they get to their teenage years, they feel they were dragged to church, and so when they get older, they decide to leave. But they don't understand that they are the bridge to the third generation. They don't understand how critical they are. Let me, let me just say this. There are reasons why bridges during the war are the first things that are bombed during the war. Bridges, whoever controls the bridges, controls the war. Because the bridges control who comes in and who comes out. They stopped the supplies going in. They stopped the reinforcement. So bridges are so crucial. And so the second generation is the bridge. These are the ones that were raised in church, and they're attacked in a whole different way because if they survive, that second generation survive, then we have a third generation. You see what I'm saying? See, you're the bridge, and you're wondering why you're so attacked. Because if you don't make it, we don't have a third generation. You're crucial. You're important. This is why when I look at my children, it was very crucial to me that they make it, that they have an encounter with God. One of the things that I prayed, I said, God, they can't survive on my encounter. There's no way they're going to make it on my encounter. they got to experience their own encounter. At some point in their walk with God, my prayer, I'm telling you, this was just a simple prayer. God, I, I, I just want them to have an encounter with you. I don't know when that's going to happen, at what age, at what point, but God, I just pray that they have a genuine Holy Spirit encounter. 
And so therefore, now I have my two granddaughters. Now we have a third generation. And if my granddaughters make it, which they are, hallelujah, then this strain of faith takes on a permanence that the first two generations did not have. Are you listening to me? This is why, again, it's just a theory. Is it possible? This is why God stopped introducing himself. He said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Three successful generations. And then he didn't say, I'm the God of Joseph, and I'm the God of Moses. Just stop right there. Could it be that after Jacob, that strain of faith that was in Abraham, that was passed down to Isaac, all of a sudden this third generation takes on a permanence, are you listening to me, that the other generation did not have? If we're doing it correctly and passing it on from one generation to another, we're going to impact generations to come. We're going to be a bridge to generations to come. And so now, even as the fellowship here, we are at that critical point. We've got some bridges in this house today. We've got generational bridges that are so crucial to what God's going to do. God is always moving generationally differently, though. Hear me tonight. When he moved through Abraham's life, he was showing Abraham, I'm the originator. Don't try to do things on your own because you're going to produce an Ishmael, which he did. When he dealt with Isaac, he was saying, Isaac, you're a receiver. You didn't earn this wealth. It was given to you. It's a gift. In fact, you're a gift, buddy. He was showing Isaac, you're a gift or you're receiving a gift. And then he dealt with Jacob and he was showing Jacob in that generation that you need to have confidence, but not self-confidence, but God confidence. My wife tells me Godfidence is what she said. We need some Godfidence. And so Jacob learned how to have some Godfidence, but he had to be broken on the outside in order to be broken on the inside. Am I right? So the reason why I'm saying this to you is it's critical to understand what God is doing generationally because God moved differently generationally. In fact, I'll give you a prime example. When Jesus comes on the scene, listen to what, read the scripture with me. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 12, Jesus went into the temple of God and he drove out, drove out all of those who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of thieves. I hear people all the time, I don't have a pastor. Jesus is my pastor. You can't have Jesus as your pastor. He'll overturn your furniture. He'll preach to you. He'll do all these things to you. There's no way. But look at what it says. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priest scribes saw the wonderful thing that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, the son of David, they were what? Extremely displeased and said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, I do. Have you, have you never read? Hello. 
Out of the mouth of children and infants, you have perfected praise. Jesus is making a statement. Stay with me. He's making a statement. He is reclaiming ownership to his house. He is reminding the people whose church it is anyway. He's saying, this is my house. This ain't your house. This is my house. He's trying to get them to evaluate what's going on. And so, therefore, he comes in and he begins to wreck the place. Could you imagine the pastor coming in? He just starts wrecking your house. He's wrecking the place. And then the, the Bible says this. This is why it's so important that we know who the owner is. He is ending, let me tell you, when Jesus comes on the scene, the entrance of Jesus' presence is representing an ending to another type of worship, to a new type of worship. Now, let me explain what I'm saying before you get all religious on me, okay? The Bible says in John 4, 23, it says the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and true for the Father seeks such to worship him. So when Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew chapter 21, he is saying, you guys have to stop doing things the way you're doing. I'm establishing a new covenant. And he said, I'm establishing because he's saying what you guys are doing, what you're involved in is not my original design. He's saying this is not a place of empowerment. This is not a place of equipping. This is not a place of my presence. He said, man, this is not presence driven. This is not spirit driven. This has become self-seeking. This has become entertainment. This has become irrelevant to what I'm trying to do here. In fact, the Bible says in, in, in the book of Hebrews 8, 6, it says, but in fact, the ministry of Jesus, or the fact the ministry Jesus hath received is as superior to theirs of the, as the covenant of which he is the mediator, he is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant established on better promises, for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, there would be no place, no place would have been sought for another. So what is he talking about here, the superior, inferior? What's going on here is Jesus is basically the Old Testament is an old covenant. The New Testament, testament means covenant. He said, I'm establishing a new covenant, revised promises, a new way. You need to stop doing things the way you've been doing things. Well, you guys are getting religious on me. <laughs> See, these people were holding on to something that was inferior. And Jesus has said, I got something better. Jesus is saying, you, you guys are, are, are doing all these sacrifices and all these things and animals. He goes, man, I'm, I am the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is saying, you know what? I come to establish something better. He said, I, he goes, you have to go to a priest when you have a sin issue, and then that priest has to go in your place. He said, but now you can come straight to me. You can bypass the man, and you can come straight to me. He goes, I got a better way of worship. Jesus is saying, you know what? Uh, uh, the way you're doing it, you got to 
purchase a sin offering every time. Could you imagine if we had to purchase a sin offering every time? Some of you would be bankrupt today. You'd have to be borrowing money. And Jesus is saying, all you have to do now is if you confess your sin, I'm faithful and just to forgive you your sin. So he is ending one expression of relating to God, and he's establishing a new way of worshiping and relating to God. He said, my house shall be a house of prayer. Not purpose-driven. I like purpose but it's to be presence-driven and spirit-driven. He goes, this is my house. You're just a steward. And when it's my house, you don't make the rules. How many understand that? Jesus is saying, you're, you're starting to put all kinds of laws in my house. You're starting to put all kinds of rituals in my house. This is my house. This, you go, people can't come to your house and make rules. Why are you making rules in my house? We're not careful. We start making all kinds of rules about who can come to church and who can't. What status, what social status, how old they are, how young they are. We start making all these rules. We've got to be careful. We're going to miss the next generation. Jesus is encouraging us today that this house needs to be a house of prayer. He said, you need to stop doing some things. There are some churches today that in order to be a part of that church, first you have to come to that church and you have to believe. Then after you believe, you got to behave. Then after you behave, then you belong. But I believe God is flipping that whole thing around. He said, when you come to my house, you already belong. And then by prayer, you'll begin to believe. And after you believe, you're going to begin to behave and you're going to become all God wants you to be. See, so many times we need to accept people as they are. Now, it doesn't mean we endorse the way they live. But people accepted you with all your hang-ups when you came to church. And some of you, man, you were looking bad, and you clean up real well, and God's done a great work in your life. But I'm here to tell you that when people come into the house of God, this is supposed to be a place of healing and restoration and the power of God touching their life. They're hurting. Are you listening to me? We need to let them in. Pastor Donna came to my church Sunday morning, this past Sunday, and she ministered. And she said something in the church, and she told my church, when I, she remembers me, when I came to church, I was 16 years old. And she said, I remember, she's telling my church, I remember Omar. She said, I remember when he was young that he, would, uh, he was so hungry for God, she said. And that many times he, I, I couldn't get to Pastor Mike Neville because there was such a revival. The older guys were able to get in there, and I was just a young guy. So what I began to do is I just began to follow her. I go, the next best thing to Mike Neville is Pastor Donna Neville. So I just start chasing after her. And so I'd follow her out to the car. You know, I, I'd, I'd help her to the car. But, but I'd be asking questions. What do I need to do to do something for God? 
And I'd be talking to her, and I knew eventually Pastor Mike Neville would come out to the car, and maybe I'd get two minutes with him. But I was so hungry. I, almost every service I was there talking to her, and she remembers that. Uh, and, and then she told my church, you need to stalk your pastor. I said, what? <laughs> I said, I'm 55 years old. You were 30 years old back then when I was, you know. You had a lot more energy, but anyway. I don't know if we got a couple pictures up there, but there are a couple pictures up there when my wife and I first got married. I don't know if we could, I don't know if I could see them up here. And so eventually I got married. Then uh, at 20, 21 years old, I became the worship leader. I don't know if they have that picture up there. And then at the age of 24 years old, my wife and I were sent out. And there's a picture there, I think, of me and my pastor when I was 24 years old, just started pastoring. And I thought, man, how powerful, man, that I came into that church. You can put the pictures down. But today, let me just ask you this today. What are you guys laughing at? I don't know. Is there another picture up there? But I want to say this to you. At my age, that church had a place for me. Today, we have a 16-year-old saying, you've constructed a church for 61-year-olds. Is there not a place for me here? They're looking, man, can you just kind of put something together for me where I could come? We got young people today said, I, I don't wear Stacy Adams. Uh, I, 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 you know, I don't wear a tie, man. I, you know, I, I'm suffocating in this suit, you know. I, you got me in the hot sun in the parking lot with a 3 P. I I can't do this. I wear tennis shoes. There's still church today. You got you to have a suit on. You got to do all this. So, man, this poor 16-year-old guy, he's, he's dying. He's, he's got dry mouth. He's going to pass out. Am I right? Then, 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 you know, you got some that, you know, they like to rock, and people say, why are you rocking, man? Let them leap. Let them jump. At least they're worshiping God here. And I get people say, why the lights? Why the video? Why the loud music? The early church didn't have it. Well, the early church didn't have buildings either. They met, met in caves. So we go back to that. How far you want to go? They didn't have electricity. How far you want to go back? They didn't have microphone. How far you want to go back? Let, let me tell you. It's not a biblical issue. It's your preference issue. So you, you want to just go back to where you prefer because you're religious. That's why. I, I remember when I first started pastoring. I shouldn't say I was first pastoring. I, I should say I was pastoring. And I remember that uh, uh, we, needed, we needed, you know, some more musicians. And we, we were short. So we, we started putting some young people up there, you know, 11, 12 years old. They were, you know, we just started putting them on the drums. And, man, we needed something, man. And they had energy, so I said, man, we're doing it. 
But can I tell you something? I'm going to be honest with you. I had a pastor come one time, and he was visiting. And he said, I, I wouldn't do what you're doing. I said, what do you, what do you, what do you mean do what I'm doing? He goes, I wouldn't do what you're doing, having those young people up there. You don't even know what they're up to. I go, you don't even know what adults are up to, but okay. <laughs> but, but, but I want to say this to you. I want to be honest with you today. I, I preached in that church the last few years, and he missed a generation. And all his, all his church is way older now. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying he missed a generation. I look back at those guys that were 11 and 12. Today they're pastoring. Today they've been doing worship. I don't know. See, I believe the, the church doesn't belong to one generation. It's multi-generational. There's one more picture up there, I think, of our hospitality group. Can you guys put that up there? Is that up there? Is it up there? Awesome. The reason why I'm showing you that picture, somebody posted that picture, and I, I was looking at it, and they were just so thankful. They, 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 I think it was a, a during Christmas they got together and they did a, a team meeting or something. I was looking at the picture, and I realized something about that picture. The youngest person in that picture is 15 years old. The oldest person in that picture is 61 years old. And I begin to look at the ages. We have 15-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 61-year-olds, all working together, multi-generational. We've got a mission. Are you hearing me? We've got to realize today, this generation needs the Lord. I've got so much more to say, and I, I just can't say it all. But we've we got, we got to make sure that we're preaching the gospel the way it needs to be preached. The Bible said that he turned over the money changers, and he did all of these things. And, and if you don't want to know what a money changer is, what, what would happen if you'd, you'd come to the temple and you give the guy $20, and he changed your money to $10 temple money. So he pocketed the 10 bucks and he gave you $10 worth of temple money and then you went and bought a sacrifice. They were, basically, they were exploiting the people. Now, I'm not talking about hats and books and all that. So, oh, they're over there. That's not what's going on. The exploitation that's happening here, I want you to understand something, is why they were selling it and their attitude behind it. Because it was no longer about sacrifice. It was them just exploiting the people to say, if you do this, you'll be okay. If you just do the sacrifice, you'll be fine. What are we selling here today? What kind of promises are you giving people in your church? That, man, if you just, you know, come to church on Sunday, you'll be okay. Your problems will go away on Monday. That if you give a dollar and a holler, your whole life will be changed. What are we selling? False promises. You know, we're not, if we're not careful. We're selling all kinds of false promises. We're not, we're, you know, we're saying, well, just love God, but you don't have to make him the Lord God over your life. Just live a good life, not a surrendered life. Just give people information, not transformation. 
teaching people all they have to do is like Christ, but they don't have to be like Christ. See, I don't care how many times you hit the like buttons, I like Christ. That don't make you a Christian, and, and that don't get you to heaven. Oh, like Jesus, oh yeah. People that like Christ are fans. People that are Christ-like are committed followers. Are you hearing me? And we get a lot of people, they like Christ, but they're not like Christ. Did you know that's what Christ Christianity is? Christianity is supposed to be Christ-like. We speak in tongues, but we won't speak to each other. Well, where's the Christianity? Most of the problems that people deal with in church, it, it's not people problems, it's God problems. You have a problem with God. You have a problem with the word of God and God's trying to change. See, we're, we're, what are you selling, man? We, we still believe in altar calls. We still believe that God changes people at the altar. Can, can I tell you, I'm, I'm going to say something. We still believe in repentance. What are we selling? False promises? People don't need to repent anymore. They need to repent. In fact, Jesus' first message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I get people telling me, well, that's, you know, after that, that's before Jesus died and resurrected, but he didn't mean for us to keep preaching repentance. I'm going to show you a scripture. I need to just read this. Luke 24, this is after Jesus rose again. He told them, this is written, the Messiah will suffer from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sin will be preached in his name, what? To all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witness of these things. I'm going to send you what my father's promise, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So he's saying repentance is something that all of us need to keep preaching. See, there's something deep inside all of us this morning. It's called conviction. And there's nothing wrong with that. We, you know, we preaching so, you know, we're, we're preaching these messages that are so inspirational that if we're not careful as pastors, we become like drug pushers and they're addicts and we're just trying to feed them to make them feel good. We're the repentance, man. We're the transformation in that person's life. Oh, I don't want to make them feel guilty. Can I tell you something? Guilty, guilty is the warning light that something's wrong. When you feel guilty, you realize, hey, I feel bad about what I did. You should because you, you're doing wrong. That's also called conviction to repentance toward God. The Bible says in the book of Acts, when they heard this, Peter's preaching, they came under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do? Jesus said when he, he comes, uh, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in him. Repentance is still the message of the gospel and the next generation. If, if we're going to reach the next generation, we better start preaching the truth, man. Or no one's going to get changed. 
or no one's going to get transformed. We have a gospel that needs to be preached. We have a message that needs to go forward. And I'm going to close with this because I know I've gone over time already. Matthew 28 says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, there's all kinds of people are saying what the church ought to be doing. They're tweeting this. They're posting that. The church, who are you to tell me my job description? The Bible tells me that I'm to preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. That is what's going to reach. I said that's what's going to reach the next generation. That's what's going to change this generation and future generation. Paul the apostle said, stir up the gift. Stir up the gift. I want the, the musicians, if they would come tonight. Because I just feel the power of God in this place. I feel a burden for the next generation. I feel a burden for the bridge generation. Some of you that grown up in church, you don't realize how critical you are to this movement, to generations to come. And I, 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 Honestly, I want to pray that God will stir up the gift in you. Because you have so many giftings. You have so much knowledge. You have so many things in you. You have no idea. The call of God's on you, but you're trying to fill it with all kinds of things. And you're wondering why you're not satisfied. Because you're not in the will of God. Because God didn't create you for that. He created you for his purpose and his call. And you'll never have peace until you start doing his will. Because you're the bridge to the next generation. You're the one that's going to link one generation to the next. Hey, thanks for listening to this week's message from Praise Chapel Paramount. If you want to stay connected, follow us online with Facebook and Instagram at PC Paramount or visit our website at praisechapelparamount.com.